Hey, Radically Genuine listeners, we have an urgent announcement before we start today's episode. At this pivotal moment, Western societies are entrenched in a profound mental health crisis, partly influenced by how we understand and treat human suffering. Common and expected reactions to stressful events are being pathologized, inaccurately categorized as psychiatric disorders, and haphazardly treated with psychiatric drugs. Alarmingly, Patients are frequently not informed about the potential risks linked to these drugs, and medical misinformation is rampant. This absence of informed consent represents a serious ethical violation, depriving individuals of their fundamental right to make fully informed decisions regarding their mental health care. Industrial deception amplifies the perceived benefits of these drugs while downplaying their well-documented harms. As a result, adverse drug reactions and undiagnosed health conditions are frequently misconstrued as indicators of deteriorating mental health, trapping individuals in a cycle of enduring disability. The pharmaceutical industry has hijacked our collective understanding of mental health, molding medical professionals into legalized drug dealers through their training and influence. Additionally, mental health therapists are widely influenced by industry deception, political ideology, and shifting cultural norms. Who can we rely on for compassionate, ethical, and unbiased mental health care information? Where can we find the accurate resources needed to make informed decisions about our health care? What alternative explanations or treatments may exist? We're embarking on a bold mission to revolutionize mental health care. Our objective is straightforward, to connect individuals and families with ethical health care practitioners who respect your personal values and champion your right to medical freedom and informed consent. Our larger goal is to provide free access to science-based health information, empowering you to make informed decisions. We cannot consent unless we are informed. By fearlessly challenging the established norms of the medical authority, and the psychiatric industry, we're transparently revealing the limitations and potential harms of psychiatric diagnoses and treatments. We're rallying an army of supporters to help us reach our target of $150,000. This investment is pivotal as we will provide the initial funding necessary to launch our online platform and kickstart our programmatic initiatives. Together, we can save and transform lives. I've started the Conscious Clinician Collective, and you can visit theccollective.org to join or to make a donation to this important cause. We need an army of supporters. We must unite. Please join or donate. Visit theccollective.org. The link is in our show summary. In therapy, Radically Genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Chris Page is a licensed therapist with over 30 years of experience and an advocate in the prescribed harm community. Extreme agitation and restlessness brought on by a benzodiazepine inspired him to share his own story with the goal to increase awareness of the signs and symptoms for akathisia. Today's podcast, we welcome licensed psychotherapist and founder and executive director of the Akathisia Institute, 
Chris Page. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. Informed consent. It's a principle in medical ethics and medical law that a patient must have sufficient information and understanding before making any decisions about their medical care. Pertinent information must include risks, the potential benefits of the treatment, alternative treatments that exist, the patient's role in treatment, and their right to refuse that intervention. In most systems, healthcare providers have a legal and ethical responsibility to ensure that consent is informed. This principle applies broadly in healthcare. For example, to conduct research and to disclosing any medical information. In our field, in mental health, it is rare that patients are provided accurate information about the risks. And I fear that many of them are not provided information about safer and more alternative treatments. Part of the mission of the Radically Genuine podcast is to bring science-based information to the public and to bring on guests who can communicate uh, about these specific subjects that are grounded in kind of scientific evidence, evidence and can speak to the challenges that exist in our current medical care. That leads us to today's guest. I want to welcome Chris Page, who is a licensed clinical social worker and been a licensed therapist for over 30 years. He is the founder and executive director of the Institute of Akathisia Research and Prevention, which is going to be the focus of today's podcast. Chris has practiced in a variety of settings, including teaching hospitals and schools. He's taught at the undergraduate and graduate level. He's presented papers at the national and international conferences and appeared on Dateline NBC for his work with children and divorce. Chris has been in private practice since 1988 and currently provides supportive coaching to clients both nationally and internationally. Chris himself has suffered from severe akathisia for three years, losing everything in his life, and he's pledged that if he survived that syndrome, he would commit his life to saving others from suffering the same fate. Since recovering from akathisia, Chris has appeared on numerous podcasts discussing both his experience with akathisia and the goals for the Institute. He has published an upcoming academic chapter entitled Hiding in Plain Sight, Medication-Induced Complex Akathisia Syndrome, an Updated Clinical Criteria Assessment and Treatment Guide, and is currently in the initial phases of developing an updated clinical scale to better aid medical and mental health professionals in identifying cases of akathisia. Chris, welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. McPhillan. Very excited to be here today. We were talking a little bit before we went on air, and you said something interesting that you usually don't come across many people who speak out on these issues unless they've been harmed themselves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's what brings you on here, not only as a, a mental health professional, but somebody with the lived experience of taking the route down psychiatric drugs and then having to deal with these horrific and sometimes life-threatening side effects. Let's just start from the beginning. If you can kind of tell us your story and how, how you got to a place in your career now where you are so steadfast and um, passionate about this issue. 
Well, I would start with uh, the joys of complex trauma. Um, I was adopted, parents divorced. Uh, my pediatrician uncle decided to do an exam on me without my consent. Um, so I had lots of loading, I would say, um, to be anxious and depressed. And as I've gone on this journey, it's fascinating to see how my own trauma has become a narrative within the narrative of mental health that's been evolving. And when I started in the field in the early 90s, um, nobody had talked about PTSD. I mean, PTSD had just been a new revelation even in the DSM-3, I believe, at that point. And PTSD at that time was really only viewed in the context of the real specific view of you know war exposure and really, really way outside the norm of human experience exposures. And I think we've seen in the last 20 years or so a really nice evolution in terms of viewing trauma from a more complex view. And that not only do experiences cause trauma, but lack of experiences cause trauma too. And so I think that as I went through my career and I had this loading of trauma history, but as we talked about before, when I started in the career, it was really kind of the, the nexus of the, of the explosion of psychiatric prescribing. And I remember when I started in the field, you know, I think everybody at that point was drinking the Kool-Aid full. And, you know, wow, we have medicines that can balance a chemical imbalance. And, you know, wow, we have the ability to, to help mental diabetics with drugs like insulin, you know, and things like that, you know, how miraculous is this going to be? But I think as Dr. McPhillan and I discussed, we both started to notice over the course of our career that the sales hype was not matching what we were seeing clinically in our offices. And that I started to notice that people on antidepressants were chronically depressed and that they were actually getting worse. Their depression often was getting worse. And around that time, I took my first antidepressant, which was Zoloft. And I was married at the time. And I remember my ex-wife turning to me at one point and saying, you know, we haven't made love in a month. And I was like, it had made me flat, blase, indifferent. I used to joke that if my house had been on fire, I would have been like, well, I'll get to it later. Mm -hmm. You know, it made me numb and, and disconnected. And in many ways, I think it, it contributed to the demise of that relationship. Um, so I then at that point was in my career, but I also added, you know, because mental health doesn't always pay the bills. And I added a second life, which was running a, a music school called the School of Rock. I own two School of Rock music franchises. And the stress I was under at that point was way too much for human consumption. And I think I was doing the Western view of suck it up, pull your bootstraps up, work 80 hours a week and don't complain. And around that same time when I think I was getting to the point of, I would say, even kind of falling apart almost you know just from stress and overwork i had a prostate infection and when i had the prostate infection i was prescribed an antibiotic called cipro and cipro is in a class of antibiotics called fluoroquinolones including leviquin and a few other ones and when i took that drug in 2013 there was no black box warning on it for the black box warning that i got which was i started taking cipro and all of a sudden i stopped sleeping and 
there was no adverse, you know, effect on the medicine in the, you know, in the informed consent pamphlet referencing anything around insomnia or agitation or anything like that. It is now a black box warning, but at the time it wasn't. And so I started getting agitated. I stopped sleeping and I asked my doctor for 10, one milligram clonopin tablets because I'd taken clonopin before for sleep. And she gave me 20, which just shows the complete lack of fear or worried that there was any way going to be an issue for me. And I took a grand total of 16 total milligrams over three months. So like a quarter milligram one day, three days later, a half milligram, something like that. But it's amazing what you don't know when you're taking a medicine to kind of piggyback to that informed consent idea. Things I've learned since that are, first off, I learned about half-lives that medications have different half-lives that really determine how your body processes the medicine and how long it stays in your system and how for some people effective it can be because we all have different metabolic pathways that are genetically kind of determined how we individually process medicines. And by taking the clonopin every three or four days, clonopin has, an eight, has, a, clonopin has a very weird half-life. It has an 18 to 50 hour half-life, which really wow. means it's variable. Mm-hmm. And, and it really means it's, I would also argue, it's very sensitive to each individual's metabolic system. I would argue, I imagine my system is slow. And so even though I was taking the medicine only every three or four days, it takes five total half-lives scientifically for the medicine to be out of your body. So five times 50 is 250 divided by 24 is 11 days. So if I'm taking it every two to three or three to four days, I'm never actually having it leave my system fully. So I got, as so many people that take these medicines do, I got inadvertently dependent on it, not addicted. See, this is another thing with the language is so important is that unfortunately we have a medical system that views any, you know, any, I would even argue any, almost any side effect from a medicine as a personal responsibility issue for the patient that um, in some ways that we are, that, you know, I think we've all learned that we have to be our best advocates in this too. But so the medicine's never leaving my system. There's also a process we'll talk more about too called kindling. And kindling actually is a uh, process that originally came from epilepsy, from seizure disorders. And with a seizure disorder, the idea is that once you have had one seizure, your seizure threshold is lowered. So it's easier to have more seizures. The next place they applied that theory to was alcohol withdrawal and alcohol withdrawal. What they started to notice is that each subsequent alcohol withdrawal for a patient was worse, clinically more severe, uh, more debilitating. And what they kind of hypothesized was that each time you remove the alcohol, which actually targets our GABA receptors in our brain, the same part of our brain that benzodiazepines target, that each time you remove a substance, that you're dependent on a substance and remove it, the brain gets more sensitized to that substance. So I think what happened to me is I'd been on clonopin before and I tapered off of it. This time, uh, I just taking it every few days, I kindled myself in a sense that all of a sudden I woke up one day and the medicine wasn't working anymore. I had reached something what we would call tolerance, that my body had become tolerant to the medicine. And at that point, it became paradoxical. Instead of helping me sleep, it hindered me from sleeping. And anybody that has had severe insomnia knows why the military uses sleep deprivation as torture. Because there is nothing, you know, 
you think you're having a long day when you're sleeping eight hours. Imagine how long that day is when you're not sleeping and you're up for 24 straight hours and then 48 straight hours. You start to dread the evening. As soon as the sun starts to set, this anticipatory anxiety comes of, oh my God, here we go again. So here I am not sleeping. Doctors, I, you know, I go into my primary clueless, uh, consulted a couple of psychiatric friends, clueless. And my family was scared because at that point I started, I think I had the beginnings of akathisia at that point. I started to have the restlessness. I started to have some pacing and I started to have some really pronounced suicidal ideation, which of course terrified my mother. And so my mother and my sister convinced me against what I would say my gut and better judgment to fly from Florida to Vermont to go to a place for a medically supervised five-day detox to take me off the clonopin. I had done enough research at that point. I knew it probably wasn't the best idea, but I was desperate. And when you are desperate, you will do anything to get relief. And then under intense family pressure, I consented to enter this detox. And I experienced something that I really am committed to the rest of my life for others to never experience. And over five days, they took me off a milligram and a quarter of clonopin, which is the equivalent of 25 milligrams of Valium. Knowing now that taper should take two to three years, probably in the condition I was in at that point. I always tell clients that I work with that what they did was the equivalent of taking the red connector and the black connector and hooked me up to a car battery and shocked my brain and my nervous system in a way that eight and a half years later, I still have lingering remaining symptoms from. The akathisia I had experienced before went insane. I was literally walking the halls of the detox unit constantly. I couldn't, I couldn't sit still. And of course I'm being diagnosed with anxiety. And, and my favorite diagnosis was the social phobia diagnosis they gave me, which was, they said, you can't sit in groups. And I'm like, no, I can't sit. See, there's a difference. I can sit in groups. I just can't sit. Ironically, four months before I entered the detox, I had given a presentation on a microphone in front of 500 people, kind of the antithesis of a social phobia. And so I'm in this, you know, it, it feels like an alternate reality, a parallel universe. You know, it feels like you're the only one that knows what's going on with you. And everybody else is telling you that what is this, what you're experiencing is not, not possible, okay? not real. I get sicker and sicker. I get discharged from the detox. And again, the detox, what was the length of detox determined by? It wasn't determined any, I mean, medically supervised is comical. It, it wasn't determined by anything more about how much my insurance would pay. Okay, so insurance would pay 10 days, I would have had a 10 day detox, not that it would have changed anything. But I think it just shows kind of the difficulties in the system as it's created right now. I end up in an outpatient program um, where I am completely out of my mind. And that day, I told a few too many people that I was thinking about ending my life. And I ended up in a psych ward. And as someone that worked for years on a psych ward, it was very humbling to be going from the man that had the key to being the one locked up. And I would say as both a practitioner and a consumer, 
There is nowhere on earth worse for someone in distress than an inpatient psychiatric unit. I don't know if people understand how psychiatric units work. The first thing they work for is one position and one position only, which is liability. Okay. And what they will do is most people, I would argue, most people end up in a psych ward from insomnia and issues related to, to sleep that cause an increase in psychiatric symptoms. In psych wards, because of a liability, they come in your room every 30 minutes and put a flashlight in your eyes mm. to make sure you're not dead. How is that going to allow somebody to heal and get healthier again? The last night I was in the psych ward, I didn't sleep a second. And they still discharged me the next day because my insurance had stopped paying. So I'd actually accomplished nothing. I went back for one more half day to the outpatient program and I met the, in, the outpatient psychiatrist and he looked me in the eye and said, if you still believe 10 days after cessation of benzodiazepines that you're in withdrawal, I suggest you go back to Florida. And I took him up on the offer and I called my mother and I said, I'm going home. And this is another conundrum that people with akathisia end up in, which is the only reason I am alive today is that I refuse treatment. If I'd accepted treatment, I'd be dead. But when you're in that level of distress and your family is terrified and you're refusing treatment, they look at you as if they don't know what to do with you. As if they throw their hands up. As if it's part of the illness. As if it's part of the illness. And that's the whole problem. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I know I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's Anna's Nagoja or whatever, <laughs> that long word of, you know, that, that psychiatry is created to basically discredit everybody's opinion which is you just don't, you're lacking the insight to see how sick you actually are. Yeah. How do you overcome that stigma? It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really difficult thing because that's another thing that I've sadly learned on this journey is once you have a mental health diagnosis, I don't care who you are, your credibility has gone. Yeah. Cause if you your were, is gone. what you were experiencing and you recognize now that that restlessness was the akathisia, Everybody else just thinks you're psychotic. Exactly. Or panicked. You know, you have a panic disorder or or even you know, borderline personality disorder because your mood is so labile. You're up, you're down, you hate. Please help me. Why aren't you helping me? Please help me. Why aren't you helping me? Mm -hmm. We seem completely dissociated and, you know, psychotic. But I would argue psychosis in, with akathisia, at least as we'll talk more about the subtypes I've created, is actually much more rare. Um, that I wished I was psychotic because I would have been disconnected from the insane pain I was feeling, and mm. the insane agitation I was feeling. So I end up in the psych ward. Again, they don't know anything. I end up going home. I close my practice. Um, I live with my stepmother for eight months until they kick me out because they're very 12 steppy and they think that I'm not, not willing to admit my problem, you know, and I haven't hit my bottom yet. I got all the good cliches. Um, I was actually going to two or three AA meetings a day and pacing. <laughs> that was quite a, an, ex, an experience. So in a lot of ways, um, you're, you're presenting to the public as if you're, if you're, if you're drug addicted. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so you're devalued as if it's a, a character flaw in some way. That is a hundred percent what happens is that, but, but we're relate, but, but we're actually put in the worst conundrum. We're an addict that's refusing treatment. Yeah. 
Yeah, you, you know, said or, it early on is that the, um, and I don't think many people understand it, is the addiction versus dependent. And you right. were dependent, and that's not what addiction is. How, how, do, right. you, I mean, how do you define the difference between addiction and dependency? Well, I mean, first, the first one is craving. You know, I mean, at, you know, if somebody's addicted to something to crave the substance. I wasn't craving clonopin. I, w- I was grateful to be off the clonopin. I never, I don't want to ever take a clonopin again. And I don't have to go to clonopin anonymous and sit in a room with other clonopin addicts and talk about my addiction. No, I don't, I never want to take clonopin again. Yeah, there's, and, no, there's no high that you're receiving. There's no high. Yeah. And it's not, you know, you're not drug seeking and craving something. And you're not, and most people, and this is the other thing too, is that most people are using the medicine as prescribed. Yeah. And I was actually using the medicine less than prescribed. I mean, she prescribed it at half milligram a day and, and that would have lasted what, you know, 20 pills would have lasted, you know, 40 days or whatever. And it's this disconnection in the medical field that they don't understand that dependency is a problem and that especially with psychiatric drugs, what dependency really means is neuroadaptations. You know, it means that the brain and the nervous system have made adaptive responses to this medicine being introduced. I mean, I think that's another myth that the public has been sold on is the idea that our body and brain welcome these wonderful, helpful medicines. Okay. And I say to doctors now, and they'll admit it's true. I said, you know what medicine is? And they're like, what? I said, it's a magic trick. Okay. It's a magic trick. And you've decided what part of the magic you like and what part you don't like. The part you don't like, you call it a side effect. The part you like, you call it a therapeutic effect. But all you're doing is introducing something into the body that tricks the body into a response. That's all you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the body doesn't go, yay, Prozac. Oh, I feel so much better now. No, the body goes, oh, Prozac, what do I do with this? You know, what compensatory changes do I have to make to compensate for the excess serotonin now that I have in my brain? And so, but again, here I am in this conundrum where I'm being viewed as an addict. I'm being put in an environment of addicts. I'm acting the craziest in the environment of addicts. And then I'm refusing that I'm an addict. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it creates this place that so many people with akathisia end up, which is you're alone. I, I lost really every single person in my life, including my parents, my mother, you know, and I ended up a year into a draw in Anchorage, Alaska with psych survivors that were supposed to help me who actually ended up abusing me. That's a whole secondary story. Um, I was trapped in Anchorage, Alaska, all by myself, 6,000 miles from home. I didn't have one person on the planet that cared about me. I had absolutely no reason to be alive. I mean, if you look at foundational suicide prevention beliefs around connectedness and purpose and community and, and all those things, I had nothing. I had, no future, I had no reason to live. But I wanted to live because first off, no one was going to write my um, eulogy and say, and nobody was going to make a donation to NAMI in my name. And nobody was going to say if mentally ill Chris had just found the right medicine. Okay. I had to live. And that's kind of, you know, people always say to me, how did you get people back in your life? And I said, honestly, I, I got people back in my life by getting better by proving that everything I was saying was true, but I couldn't prove it until my I was myself again. And so here I am, I'm trapped in Alaska. I end up um, flying to Cleveland. I think you read the, the story of my flight, um, which was quite the experience. Um, 
having severe akathisia and being on an airplane is about the worst place you can be. And thank God I had cool flight attendants. I was literally in the back of the plane and they even told the pilot and the pilot I know intentionally never put the fasten, excuse me, fasten seatbelt sign on until we were landing. And then three hours in O'Hare airport at 6 a.m. completely out of my mind was quite the experience. Um, and then two more years living with someone else that sort of took care of me, but it was not a healthy situation either. That's another thing that I'm so committed to is creating resources. Because first off, I was denied disability three times, okay, even though I was more disabled than almost anyone I've ever seen. I lost all social support. I lost my ability to work. People need support and external things in place. And we'll talk more about when I talk about the Institute, about what some of the things I'm, you know, I'm hopeful we can create in the future. But I paced between 10 to 12 hours a day for three straight years. I had my feet had bloody open sores on them because the human body is not designed to walk that much combined with the fact that I couldn't even keep socks on because they felt so restrictive. Every moment of that time, I was actively suicidal. How can you not be going through that? Right. How can you not be, you know, and it's a miracle I'm alive with the amount of times I had a firearm in my hands. Um, but I truly believe if there is any guiding force in this universe, it kept me alive so I can do this work. So let me ask you some because questions. I, I want to yeah. paint context here a little bit. Obviously, you come across to us. You're very educated, smart guy, articulate. How old were you when this process started? How old were you when, the, when you initially went on the drugs? I was 48. Yeah, and that's kind of like surprising to me. And, and Oh, when I started, when I took the medicine for the first time? Correct, yes. Oh, late, late 20s, late okay. 20s. So you're, you're in your late 20s. Did you... Uh, yeah, at this point, were you already a clinical social worker, or have you? I wasn't. I, I was working in the in the psych hospital at that point. Yep. Yeah, I think what what stands out is how the medical community or the psychiatric community can take a look at a, a person's behavior, and then pathologize that behavior when there's no history of anything that would suggest that this person would deteriorate in that way. If you're just taking a clear kind of empirical scientific approach yep. to it. You just ask the question, yep. well, what's changed? Yep. Well, what's changed is, you know, the drug. And that's the, and, and that's where I'm, I'm really lost in how to communicate with medical professionals because we'll see somebody who, although struggling like you were, and I want to get more to like how you were struggling at that particular time, it's obviously, it's manageable. There was a number of things that could that need to be changed in an individual's life. 100%. They, they, they were struggling, but not to this point. You provide the medical intervention and then they deteriorate like significantly. Significantly. And then you just assume it's the illness. It doesn't make logical sense to me. How do you make sense of all this within our, within our field? How did we get here? I think it's because of how we differentially diagnose, you know, if you look at, you know, I, I, like one of the papers I'm starting to write now is is using a traditional differential diagnostic tree to create a, a better way to look at akathisia. And in one of the articles I pulled up last night, it, it talks about like six rules or six steps of differential diagnosis. The first step is rule out malingering or factitious disorder. Okay. 
that right there is a huge problem when you have akathisia, okay? Because if you're refusing treatment, they look at you as being treat, you know, treatment resistant or, or they start questioning, is there a secondary agenda, okay? And in malingering, what's the secondary agenda? Insurance payments, or I get out of work, I get disability or whatever. The irony is, is what secondary gain was I getting? You know, as I joke to people when I healed, I said to them, you thought that I had worked my whole life to build multiple businesses. And then one day I decided I'd take up the pacing lifestyle. Mm. You know, that, that you know, I'd commit myself to, to 10 by 10 rooms and pacing in a circle like a rabid animal. You know, really, that was after 48 years, that was my decision, you know. But then the second rule out that should be ruled out first, and I remember this because I've taught psychopathology, is, is the condition in front of you being caused by a drug or a substance? The problem is, is they're looking at drugs and substances like cocaine or crystal meth. They're not looking at it as Prozac or Abilify. And if they, you know, that's the thing that I think if we could get the medical profession, good luck, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to this, to say to themselves, the first rule out that I have to rule out with everybody in front of me, has anything changed chemically? Yeah, I think that's nearly impossible when healthcare has become now prescribing pharmaceuticals. There's a, there's a great book that I want to promote. It's uh, Your Drug May Be the Problem. You might have read it. Uh, yeah. It's how and why uh, to stop taking psychiatric drugs. Dr. Peter Bregan, David yep. Cohen. And I, I do think that people now have to do their own research. They have to be advocates for themselves. They have to ask for informed consent. They have to be able to protect their loved ones and they have to be able to find resources in order to get information and ask those difficult questions. Hopefully your story is able to help people ask these very important question. So we're talking about akathisia. I know how some people might just kind of blow it off. Well, that's rare. You know, that's what you're going to hear from a medical professional. Well, that's a very, yeah. very rare condition yeah. Yeah. and you'll know it and we'll be able to take you off the drug. Give us some information. Let's start with the, the definition of what akathisia is and in its okay. various forms. And I think, and I think that is at the core part of the problem too, is what is the definition of akathisia? That the traditional definition is restlessness that causes observable movement. That's it. It's a pretty simple equation. But I think the problem is, is that by just calling it restlessness, you minimize the severity of the subjective experience. And that's really a big core of what I want to do is create a more complex you know, diagnostic definition of what akathisia actually is. Because there are very common subjective complaints that easily get misinterpreted as other psychiatric conditions. That's one of the most insidious things about akathisia is that it's a mimicking syndrome, that it looks like other things. And if you're not, you know, that's why I called my chapter hiding in plain sight. Because if you look for it, it's everywhere. If you don't look, you know, it's the old expression, you, you find what you're looking for. And what I would in a, in a perfect world like to do is make it so that if any patient ever presents with agitation or restlessness, the first rule out is akathisia. 
And that's because akathisia is a suicide-inducing symptom. If we're truly concerned about patient safety and informed consent and, and, and actually mental health, anything that has the potential to cause suicide you think should be at the top of a differential tree. But it's not even considered. And what's ironic is, and this is another interesting thing, is that I think akathisia falls in this clinical knowledge gap where nobody's looking at it. I've, as I've started the, the Institute, I've started to look at movement disorder clinics. And if you go on movement disorder, because akathisia is currently considered in the DSM a medication-induced movement disorder. But if you go to, if you Google movement disorder clinics and you go on their web pages, there is nobody treating akathisia. It's not even mentioned as a movement disorder. So if movement disorder clinics, the place that a movement disorder should be studied, don't even recognize it as a moving movement disorder. Why is that? Then who's looking? I think it's honestly because it's untreatable right now. I think it's honestly also because if you truly accept akathisia for what it is, you'd have to acknowledge you're hurting people. Yeah, Chris, and we've had a previous podcast where we had a gentleman who was prescribed a psychiatric drug. I think it was Zoloft at the time, or Zoloft or Paxil, um, just for sleep, middle-aged man who ended up murdering his own son. Uh, Akathisia-induced homicide. And uh, this does open up uh, the door for criminal, uh, criminal action in response to the pharmaceutical companies, potentially malpractice suits. I, I think it's a very slippery slope when you start recognizing really the prevalence of these deadly side effects and the more attention that's provided to it, um, I think the, the more liability lawsuits that, that exist. But it, it's, I think as a practitioner right now, it's when we, we open this podcast with talking about informed consent. Yep. Do we have data on this? The prevalence rate of pharmaceutically induced akathisia. I've seen studies recently because the other, the dilemma is that Akathisia is viewed as, it was initially viewed as, as, as a side effect only from antipsychotics. It's now been more accepted that they've accepted a few more classes of drugs in this, in this profile picture, SSRIs and antiemetics like Reglan and, 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 and a lot of those antiemetics are actually failed antipsychotics. Um, I read a study recently that in one study, SSRI users were found to have akathisia in 47% of the study. I saw recently 15.5 million people are taking an SSRI daily now for more than five years. I think a lot of, and that seems high, you know, when that you, seems high. When you talk I think it's about high. Ne nearly I think it's half, high. but we don't include all those people who like the moment they start taking it, they don't feel, they feel horrible. They just right. stop and they're like, screw this. Right. You know, I'm done with this. And, and that's, yep. a, that's a large percentage of people. I hear about that all Huge the time, percent. but they, you know, they just saved themselves. You know, they felt horrible for two or three days. They didn't like how it felt in their body. Boom, they stop. And so I yep. can understand in some clinical studies that, you know, those people would be highlighted. But I think if it was, I would, if it was near 50%, it'd be much more prevalent. I think it'd, it'd be much years. more prevalent. Yeah. yeah. I think I think if I was going to put a ballpark estimate, I'd say 10%. Okay. You know, I would say 10% of, of, of psychiatric drug users will experience akathisia, regardless of class of drugs. And that's another important thing is that I got akathisia from benzodiazepines. And 
that's another conundrum is that because benzodiazepines are viewed as a frontline treatment for antipsychotic-induced akathisia. Yeah, there just seems to be and some genetic role in this with metabolizing genes. Mm-hmm. That if Definitely. you have a specific metabolizing gene, it increases the likelihood dramatically that through the metabolizing process that you can develop akathisia. That's it. And, and, but get a doctor to understand that or a doctor to even genetically test you. Or that, well, that's the problem. We don't have we don't have that in our in our centers where people can be tested ahead of time to determine right. whether they would be at risk for that side effect. And, 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 you know, I think that again, back to informed consent, people only learn the term akathisia in hindsight. People learn they, uh, the word akathisia when they have it. Yeah. You know. And that's that's one thing I wanted to bring up is your story provides context for what you were experienced, which was the akathisia. But let's say I have a loved one who is currently right now in that state. And I think doing the right thing is putting them in a hospital setting or yeah. yep. providing more interventions. The lack of awareness of what akathisia is. And even if the medical community's not looking for it. How do you overcome that? How, how do I mean, you, how can you inform the general public that if somebody you love is currently in that state, that there needs to be some other way to recognize it? How can they recognize it? I mean, that to me is the $64,000 question. And it, 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 it kind of fits in with one of the missions I have for the Institute, which is the safest place for somebody with akathisia is at home. And that seems counterintuitive. But the problem is, is that it kind of goes back to what I said when I felt like I was in a parallel universe when I was in the, the psych ward, is that if I'm telling them I have something that they don't believe exists, they're going to treat me for other things. And the problem is, is when they treat me for the other things, it's going to exacerbate the akathisia, which then you get stuck. It's like a, it's like a hamster on a wheel. You know, it's like the sicker you get, the more treatment you get mm-hmm. and then the sicker it just become you know and how many people you know it's another thing i talk about in my my paper is how many people have suicided and no one knows why and because coroners are not screening for this nobody's screening for restless or agitation based suicides or induced suicides they're just chalking it up to you know I imagine what they do is, oh, they were taking an SSRI, they were depressed, they killed themselves because they're depressed. And we need to dig deeper. We need, you know, so, you know, so much of this is preventable. You know, the idea, again, that you don't know if you have akathisia until you have it, that's the problem. Because the best treatment now for akathisia is prevention. You know, and... Until we have better treatment for this condition, the only way to treat it is to, to first off, like you said, you know, make, you know, give people that informed consent. So when they start taking a med, if they feel weird, stop it, mm-hmm. you know, but that's the other thing too, is, and I talk about that in my paper too, the system is set up for not that to happen because if we think of SSRIs, what did doctors tell SS, SSRI patients for, give it four to six weeks. 
Or longer sometimes, you know, they say. Longer. Or longer yeah. sometimes, you know. And, and, and the problem is, is you've got this patient getting more and more agitated and the doctor saying, hold on, stay on target, stay on target. And then all of a sudden they go over a tipping point. Combined with the fact that I think that it's that initial, you know, it's why I talk about that there are two distinctly different types of akathisia in my view. There's the immediate adverse reaction, which is very similar to like serotonin syndrome. It's basically you're being you're, you're being poisoned. You're being you know exposed to a toxin. The faster you remove the toxin, the faster you go back to baseline. But the problem is is when and, and that's why you know traditional anti-akathisia strategies like cessation of a drug or changing to a an, a different antipsychotic or even raising the dose at times for some people if they've lowered the dose. An adverse reaction can be treated that way. But the problem is, is that most people I found that have akathisia develop the more chronic form of it. And the chronic form of akathisia, I would argue, is a different syndrome than the acute form. The acute form is an immediate toxic reaction to something that cessation is the best treatment strategy. If you stop the medicine, it goes away. The problem is, is that it, it, when it crosses over into chronic akathisia, the issue, at least from my professional perspective is neurotransmitter downregulation that the the brain has made adaptations to the medicine so let's take benzodiazepines you give a patient a benzodiazepine it increases the gaba available to receptors that's why people get calmer or more relaxed but once the brain has made compensatory changes the meds just doesn't work the same but the problem is, is you're then dependent. Mm -hmm. And if you use the same strategy of cessation, you make the symptoms a hundred times worse. So in a sense, we have, I would argue, two separate conditions that look the same, but have dramatically different neuroanatomical causes. And at the same time, have distinctly different treatment strategies. Because if somebody has chronic akathisia, the best strategy is often to do nothing, to keep the medicine they're on consistent so that the brain has a chance or the nervous system has a chance to settle down, to calm down from the agitation that was created by introducing the medicine. But the problem is, is that, again, medical professionals have not been trained on this. And it's this belief that if you get the offending substance out of the body, the body will recover. But I would argue you can shoot somebody and the bullet goes through the body. It's not in the body anymore and still cause fatal levels of destruction. And so, once you go ahead. So my, my question is, is, you know, there's a lot of discussion and advocacy and hopefully some degree of research on the tapering process to try to minimize these, these effects. So when you say like reinstituting the drug and staying on the drug in order for your nervous system to be able to kind of stabilize, is then the long-term process a slow taper over time? Yes. Yes. I was put on four drugs at the detox. They took me off one and put me on four. And I always, I always joke that uh, they took my benzo and upgraded it to an atypical antipsychotic. So I actually upgraded my sedative um, for $20,000 for four days. Um, <laughs> and 
you know, I think what, what, what was your question again, Dr. McPhil? Well, I'm interested in knowing that, the, you know, the long-term outcomes here as okay. far as like treatment. So um, if we're reinstituting the drug in order to stabilize the nervous system, yes. is the long-term so, treatment about tapering? And tapering slowly. And that's another thing is, is most doctors consider, consider a slow taper, which is not even remotely close to a slow taper. A slow taper is what I'm doing off of one of the medicines they put me in the detox. I've been out of the detox for eight and a half years, and I probably have another eight years of tapering. Wow. So because a lot of people so don't. Disabled. A lot of people don't understand that. No. Because tapering in our, our communities can be over the course of a month, you know, right. a few weeks. Right. So yep. you're talking about years, and I know we don't yes. have research on that. No. Now, what supports, uh, you know, an eight to sixteen year kind of taper? Taper is the idea that and this is another thing that we that that I think philosophically we have to wrap our minds around is that once we've crossed over from that immediate adverse effect to downregulation, the medicine is more of a card in a house of cards than it is an adverse effect at that point. Because the problem is, is a lot of people in the withdrawal community will say, until you're off the drugs, you can't heal. You're taking a neurotoxin. How can you heal on a neurotoxin? The problem is, is that I would argue in my eight and a half years of going through this and my 30 years of practicing, that the most damaging thing for people is, is changing meds is changing doses. It's not as much the introduction of the meds sometimes even. It's the changing of the dosing. It's the, the, you know, I even talk about it in my paper. I call it haphazard substitution of different medicines. So I, I've got a question. Um, yeah. You were talking, you're talking about the chronic, but in the acute situation, how common yes. is it for somebody to have akathisia or not even know they have it, but when it's an acute representation, are they prescribed another medication to yes. treat that? Yes, yes. I mean, and that's why we see all this polypharmacy. You know, you see, you see, you know, and that's it's another thing I argue in my paper is that how can we have all these different medicines that target or claim to target different neurotransmission symptoms, but we end up with the same symptom profile? Mm -hmm. And I think it's because, well, first off, most people, you know, once you've taken one psych drug, how, how common is it for somebody to have only taken one psych drug in their life? I mean, once you're in the arena of psychiatry, it has a tendency to, to circle, you know, to, to be placed on multiple drugs. Because again, back to what we've talked about, you give somebody a, a medicine and they have an adverse effect that looks like a psychiatric symptom, the default with the doctor is not going to be an adverse effect. It's going to be a worsening of the psychiatric symptom. Yeah. And those, those effects from the drug get misrepresented as... A psychiatric condition as, as if it's a discrete illness. So someone might right. come in, maybe experiencing something with difficulty managing stress or some phase of life problem. They'll be placed on a psychiatric drug, experience those side effects, and now be labeled bipolar disorder yep. based on the reaction to the drug. That is not uncommon. Folks out there, yep. it is a house of cards with this. This You're placed on one drug that's misunderstood as you have a poor reaction to it be very, very careful and hesitant about just turning to a new drug or an increased dose. Chris is correct. You know, this is where we're going to advocate for multiple opinions to do your research, to be able to understand just sometimes it's just reading the labels from the drugs themselves because they, they do clearly um, do discuss these potential side effects. 
in and, very small print. Yeah, very small print. And obviously, for, for reasons that are very clear, the pharmaceutical sales representative is going to really minimize the possibility that this exists. And so we have to rethink psychiatry. Yes. The DSM is, is part of the problem because it identifies all these various disorders as if they're some scientifically grounded, discrete medical illness with an etiology right. and an effective treatment. Yep. When it's just a range of a class of various symptoms without understanding the cause. Our challenge is to approach this more empirically with safety being at the forefront. And the idea of adding multiple drugs into a regimen is absolute insanity to me. And we have to really be able to communicate to the public the dangers of doing such. Um, Chris, I do, whenever somebody has gone through something like you have, and it's been hell and I'm extremely impressed with how you've been able to respond to such a, a, a horribly disabling condition to try to help other people. But if we could go back in time right before you went on the benzodiazepines, what do you think you really needed at that time? And how really do you think it would have played a, out? Okay, I needed a good trauma therapist that understood my history. I needed exercise. I needed less work. I needed probably and even richer social support system in certain ways. And something I know you've been focusing on recently that the last year I've dedicated my life to, and I think is a huge part of recovery from apathesia, is keto carnivore eating. Hmm. Um, one of the joys of the two, of two of the four meds they gave me in the detox, which were Rimeron and Seroquel, was I went from 185 pounds to 265 pounds. A real self-esteem enhancer. And now you're metabolically ago, ill. Yeah, I was metabolically ill. And, and actually my girlfriend and I are reading Chris Palmer's book right now. So, um, about a year ago, year and a half ago, I, I, I started keto and I went from 265 to 185 in seven months. And about eight weeks ago, I did a month of pure carnivore. Um, and I've, with the Thanksgiving holiday, needless to say, it's time to get back into healthy eating again. But I truly believe, because one of my arguments in my paper is that akathisia is not just caused by a dopamine dysregulation, that it's predominantly being caused by a glutamate dysregulation, and that glutamate and dopamine are bidirectional, meaning that they influence each other. So the excess glutamate then triggers a dopaminergic response manifesting as movement. Mm. High glutamate is also what you're treating with the carnivore and keto diet is that, you know, originally keto was designed for epilepsy and epilepsy seizures disorders are caused generally by high glutamate levels. And I believe a lot of the chronic iatrogenic symptoms that people have from psychiatric drug withdrawal is caused by high glutamate levels. And because I believe what, what actually happens is something we call the neurotoxic triad which is excitotoxicity which is that you know we introduced a chemical to my brain that made my brain so excitable and we know excitotoxicity is prevalent in parkinson's and there's some overlap between parkinson's and symptoms of akathisia and then the other two things that result from the excitotoxicity are oxidative stress that our body's just under so much stress that it's having problems actually just functioning chemically correctly and that's being overwhelmed 
And then that the third part of it is neuroinflammation, that our brain actually swells. And I can, I literally, after eight and a half years of going through this, can tell how good I'm doing by head pressure. I can literally feel when my brain is inflamed and when my brain is not, and it dramatically changes my symptoms. And what I've noticed is when I eat clean and I eat low carb, I feel clear. My symptoms are better from the injury. And I truly believe it's a part of what could help people recover. Yeah, it's an important tool. And I think Christopher Palmer's book, Brain Energy, will talk about the science on why that is actually the case. But you know, to consider our, our metabolic health as a critical factor here in decreasing inflammation and changing the way that our brain responds and to think about a lot of common symptoms to be reactions of the body in a very complex way, I think is, a, is an important step back instead of looking at things. Um, geez, when we talk about psychiatric care, to, there's no test. There's no blood test. I mean, there's no medical no. examination. It's somebody's opinion somebody's opinion based on like a 15 minute to 30 minute conversation yep. and that's dangerous and i know really we, we've we've both worked with children and adolescents at points in our career and we can see just how dangerous that label can be especially mm. when you're dealing with with kids who've come from environments that are you know very abusive <sighs> and uh, you know they're experiencing trauma reactions and then they're mislabeled and yep. then they're drugged well, I look at, you know, I've, I've broken down mental health to the simple thing, which is we're mammals and mental health a long time ago, forgot we're mammals. And what's the first most dangerous place in the wild for a mammal when they sleep? What's the first thing that gets erupted in a human that ends them in their primary care doctor's office is oversleeping and the consequences of undersleeping. What's the second most dangerous time in the environment for a mammal when they stop to eat? We've all seen the antelope at the watering hole get eaten by the crocodile. What's the second thing that gets that gets people in their primary office? Overeating and the consequences of overeating, undereating and the consequences of undereating. What's the third most dangerous time in the environment for a mammal is when they're having sex. What's the other thing that gets people in their primary care doctor's offices? Lack of sex, lack of libido, lack of performance. Yeah. We're mammals. If we're sleeping, eating and having sex, we don't need psychiatry. <laughs> 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 you know, it's interesting because I'm going to be presenting to my staff next week. And one of my messages to the staff is to prevent harmful interventions. Like we're yeah. at a point in the mental health care system where good care means the prevention of harmful interventions. And that is how typical harmful care is within our primary care centers. 80% of psychiatric drugs are now being prescribed by pediatricians and their primary yep. care doctor. It's haphazard. They don't have the requisite training to be able to understand uh, psychiatric conditions and how they can be effectively treated. We've been dominated by the pharmaceutical companies and we are not talking about the harms that these drugs are, are creating. You know, the other aspect of being able to prevent harm is to consider all the variables that influence a health reaction. So that's sleep, uh, that's sedentary lifestyle, lack of social connection, that's nutrient deficiencies amongst other things. Mental health has to be, uh, those who are therapists, like, uh, social workers, psychologists, we have to be uh, an arm of the healthcare system and yep. not just break up into this specialty world and then think about everything that comes in front of us from our limited lens. Tell us a little bit about your your institute, tell, tell us about your goals moving forward and how can people 
uh, get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Well, uh, the website is www.akathesiainstitute.org. And we just launched two days ago. So very exciting. We're gonna have our first fundraiser at the end of January. And my lofty goals are, uh, you know, first, you know, I think anybody that is, is uh, you know, representing the akathisia community wants akathisia to become a common word. You know, that doctors know what it means, that even the, that laymen know what it means, especially people that are taking medicines that are at risk for it. Um, my chapter hopefully will be coming out soon in a book on, on, a, on, an, edit, on an edited chapter book on antidepressant withdrawal. Um, but I will be posting the chapter on the website soon. So if you'd like to read it, it's available there soon. The third thing that I want to do is first create a five to 10 minute educational video for pharmacists and doctors on how to differentially diagnose akathisia. Um, I think one of the things that I did a really good job in my paper of that a lot of professionals have said is really good is my kind of the appendix at the end. I did a very DSM style differential diagnosis to show all the different ways you can see akathisia different from common things it's misdiagnosed as. And then a lot of it is stuff based out of my own experience of what I would have needed. Um, what I would love to do, and I just had this realization about four days ago, is I'd love to train respite workers. Because the single most important thing for somebody with akathisia is to be believed and supported in their home. There's no place to go. There's no long-term care. I mean, long-term care, they're going to you know, take your round peg and try to ram it into a square hole. You know, they're going to try to give you treatment that's not appropriate for where you're at in your own uh, process. So if we could train respite workers and find a way to fund them so that families could get four hours a day, say, you know, away from their screaming lunatic akathisia suffering loved one. That, I think, would keep the system healthier and would also allow the person because I used to tell people all I need is a cocoon. You know, if I have a safe place, I can pace all day. You know, I think I can survive this. I'm not sure, but I think I can. And there's no place now. There's nowhere for anyone to go. So I think the best thing to do would be train families on what to do and at the same time create a respite network in a sense. Um, I, I have a good friend who's a professor at a, at a university and him and I are going to put together the beginnings of a new measuring scale. The current measuring scale for akathisia is called the Barnes akathisia scale. And it's pretty good for the objective part of akathisia, but it doesn't really give any kind of good treatment to the subjective. And I think the subjective is equally, if not more important than the objective. The, to me, akathisia is a expressive symptom. It, express, it expresses the degree of iatrogenic injury. So the more injured you are, the more you pace, the more movement you have to have. Because I conceptualize akathisia as compartments. The first compartment is the subjective akathisia. It's the restlessness, the agitation, the fear, the anxiety, the frantic panic parts. And as that raises, a subsequent second container of distress raises. So that subjective akathisia increases distress until the, and then once the distress and the subjective akathisia reaches a certain level, it spills into the third container, which is the motor phenomena, which is the movement, the pacing, the shifting weight, the hand wringing, the flailing of arms, the punching of yourself. And I would argue, and I argued in my paper, that until you have the motor phenomenon, you don't have the full syndrome. 
Because again, the word akathisia literally translated is inability to sit. And if you can sit, how can you have the inability to sit disorder or syndrome? And, but I also believe, and I've, uh, this is what I argue in my paper, is that there's, there's a lot of people talking about a term of inner akathisia, which is never made, it, it feels kind of contradictory. How can you have an inner movement problem? But what I would say inner akathisia really is, is a prodrome of akathisia, meaning that prodromes originally came from migraines. And the concept of prodromes are, is you get symptoms that are subclinical that are indicators of the clinical syndrome coming. And if you can notice the prodromal symptoms, you can often head off the syndrome before it manifests fully. And I would argue the inner form of akathisia is a prodrome of the full symptom or full syndrome of akathisia, meaning that it is an opportunity then to maybe take steps to ameliorate that agitation and restlessness before it spills over into the motor phenomenon. And then I would also argue, in a sense, it's the exit point also from full florid akathisia, that when I started to heal from the akathisia, I stopped pacing, but it's not like I wasn't agitated. I was still hyper agitated and restless, just not enough that I had to move anymore. And so I think it's an entry and an exit point, and it offers us much more clinical opportunity, I think, to help people. Yeah, and I would say the way that you described it to me was really easy to, to, to understand um, and how we can increase awareness of those early stages to prevent the full-blown, you know, spilling over. It was almost like the Titanic, the way you were describing it. You know, that's it. Those, that's that, that's, what, that's what it feels like. sections underneath, and it just yep, kept on that's filling. That's what it feels filling. like. Yeah. Yep. I mean... Imagine if every time a, a primary gave a new script, they said, just want you to be aware, notice specifically if you feel any more restless or agitated and do one of two things, call me immediately or stop the drug. Mm -hmm. Bingo. Right there. Okay. That's it. If, if we could implement that, we would save countless lives both the people that kill themselves and the people whose lives end up being destroyed by it. In a sense, they're being killed too. Yeah. Instead, they're saying, stick with it or let's right. up the dose. Let's right. give it time. Or let's add something. We had Kim Wizak on our podcast. She's a global safety advocate. Yep. She's on I know her story with Woody too. Yep. So. Yeah. It's unfortunate because that was the case. I mean, he did... Yep. He did let his primary care doctor know that he was experiencing those symptoms and they just continued to increase the dose and that's a yeah, reported like hey, more time. It just needs more time. It's, it, it's so tragic because at the core of it, I don't believe the doctors are bad. I just believe they're horribly misinformed. And, yeah. and the only thing I hold doctors accountable at this point is for their absolutely poor listening skills. See, I, Chris, I have a, a completely different perspective on this. I think when you become a physician, you're you have obligated. A, a, yeah. you're obligated at a high ethical standard to first do no harm. And so you have to understand that the information that you're going to get from the pharmaceutical company. I, I would agree 100%. Yeah. You have the responsibility to educate yourself, as we're doing. I mean, you, I'm doing that here in my practice. I feel like I have a high ethical responsibility to my patients to be able to provide education so they can make an informed decision. And I'm not a prescriber. These doctors who have the right to prescribe these drugs and these drugs can be potentially deadly, then they have to stay on top of this science. 
if you're not on top of the science, you can't take the risk to prescribe these drugs. So, I mean, it's, I agree it's the minimization of the potential harm. That's it. That causes the harm. And they're getting, and they're being pushed by the pharmaceutical companies. The primary care doctors don't have the expertise in this area and they don't have the time to thoroughly evaluate what's going on with a client. It's they're haphazardly being prescribed and they have to be held accountable. Yeah, I, no, I agree with that. I agree that because, you know, I do EMDR with patients and that's a trauma technique. And I've made sure I go as slow as I can because I don't want to cause harm and or, you know, cause dysregulation for people. And I agree with you because also one of the things that's been so fascinating is I got prostate cancer in the middle of this whole journey. And I had to educate myself a ton on that because it was actually manifested originally as prostatitis and prostatitis is this weird male condition that ends up in a very similar medical knowledge gap because women have gynecologists that are both familiar with the female anatomy, but they're also trained as infectious disease doctors. Men only have urologists. Urologists are surgeons. They're not infectious disease doctors. So they don't know about the potential for severe infection in the prostate. And there's actually a subgroup of men killing themselves with prostatitis because they're being gaslit the same ways. It's all in your head. I've never heard of this. You didn't respond to the Cipro. That's another thing that's so hard is that, and so painful in this journey for me is I've realized that if doctors don't know what to do with you, they blame you. Well, it's part of the arrogance. It's that's now, what know, it is. If, if I don't know it, it doesn't exist. And I talked to a, a woman named Patricia Halligan, who's a really good psychiatrist helping people in this community. And we agreed with that. I said to her, I said, I think the problem is, is that they can't admit they're wrong or they don't know or their knowledge is limited. Because the interesting thing for me, and it was so scary too, is one of my prescribing psychiatrists after the detox said to me, you know much more about Seroquel than I do. And I'm like, isn't that a problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've done so much work on SSRIs over the past decade. And, uh, you know, one of the responses I'll get back from physicians, well, you're not a, you're not a trained medical doctor. Right. Well, I can read. I'm a, right. I'm a clinical psychologist and I, and I can, I can read the research as well as you can. And I'm dedicating right. the time to it. Where are you getting your information? Right. Um, and so that kind of thinking is really problematic in society because I think we've given up uh, a lot of our, our medical independence to quote unquote yes. experts. It's the authority yes. bias. And, and it is an yeah. authority bias. And we're, we're, it's almost like we've given them so much power that we're unable to recognize the limitations of both the science and their training. There's a great, exactly. there's a great book that speaks to the limitations of um, evidence-based care. I mean, the, um, it, it, it's, the, uh, it, it, it's kind of a fantasy that we have evidence-based treatments because so much of the, the quote-unquote trials that, that are, are done are, their entire purpose is really to bring a drug to, to market. Yeah, they're guaranteed to succeed. They're guaranteed to succeed. They get to yeah. cherry pick the, the population. Yeah. Um, they get to control the, the trial data. And they're comparing it against placebo. And often the placebo itself is going to yield quite a, quite a result. And a response. You'll, you'll, yeah, and you have to just defeat, you just have to be able to beat that placebo group through some statistical measure, which you can control what that measure is. And so and the book is called An Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine. Uh, I think John Girardi is the uh, uh, 
one of the authors. And so the doctors are trained through their medical care and through continuing medical education credits as if this is the best available evidence. And where I will give doctors some slack is, is our our healthcare uh, communities right now. I mean, they're overworked. So we, we expect them to stay on top of the literature, but with what time? You know, it's, it's, it's like cattle. They're herding them in and they're herding them out, just trying to follow some protocols. So it's not like they actually have the, the time or ability to stay on top of this. So they are doing the best they can. It's just that there needs to be a shift in the way they think about it. It's okay yep. to say, I don't know. It's yep. okay to say, hey, listen, let's do our own research on this. You know, there are risks. It's okay, just as you said, hey, listen, if any of this happens, stop taking the drug and contact me immediately. There are some great dangers and risks to this. We overvalue psychiatric drugs to such an extent is that we've created an alternative reality, a fantasy yes. world in which people live in. And yes. I'm tired of living in the fantasy world. I want to live in reality. I certainly understand the power of beliefs and the power of placebo. So you attach any idea to anything that's saving your life. I understand that someone who is suffering, even like even when you first experienced, uh, when you were on uh, an SSR, SSRI, you experienced that emotional blunting effect, right? You didn't care if the yep. house was on fire. Exactly. Um, although many people would view that as an adverse drug reaction, as I probably would. If you're in intense emotional pain, I can understand how you can view that at least temporarily to be beneficial. Be therapeutic, yep. But that's, that has to be discussed with the client. So here, this is you might experience this. Um, monitor your symptoms, right? In some science-based way. Why don't, you, why don't you use a diary? Why don't we use this app yeah. just to describe your experience? And let's be aware of any adverse reactions. That would be more evidence-based medicine. And imagine if every follow-up visit, you were given a five-question akathisia scale to fill out before you came in for your appointment. It would save lives. It would save lives because we're, we're more than happy to give people depression scales and anxiety scales. You know, why aren't we willing to give them adverse effects scales? Well, because, Chris, they're trying to increase the sale of drugs, no, not I, getting I, I people off the sale of drugs. And so that's why we don't I, see this. Well, I've always called it the Hotel California. You can check in, but you can't leave. You know, it's always been that. That's that's a good one to end on right there, Chris. You were amazing. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, it was a radically genuine conversation. There's a lot I learned. I know Sean, you probably learned a lot as well. Definitely. Hopefully, this is an incredible resource for our listeners, and we'll have all the information to be able to contact Chris and check out his his organization. But I think you know our, our takeaway here is know your drugs, understand the risks, please don't buy into the fantasy. There's no quick, easy pill that is going to make this all go away. Right? There's a, it's a lot of junk science out there, folks, uh, with a lot of dangers, and we're here to communicate the risks. Chris, thanks so much. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend 
subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.